Welcome to the seventh episode of the Devos Pikisi podcast. Uh, my co-host is, as usual, Ked Kosgrove, developer advocate with JeffRog, and I'm Baruch Sadogurski, head of DevOps advocacy in JeffRog, and our great guest for today that suffered through all the embarrassing of the opening is Chris Short, the one and only, the author of the DevOpsish uh, uh, podcast and uh, newsletter and uh, works at Red Hat, CNCF ambassador. What did I miss? Uh, I think you covered it. Yeah, I think, I think that covers it, yeah. A lot yeah. of accolades. Uh, yeah, gift and a curse, I guess, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you are still not um, uh, subscribed to DevOpsish podcast and newsletter, you should do it like today. Um, I would say that's the most accurate, fun, up-to-date, and complete coverage of what's going on in DevOps. Thank you. It's devopsish.com for anybody that's uh, curious. Thank you. There you go. There you go. Now, as you already know, this podcast is the opposite of scripted, which basically means we have no idea what we're going to talk about. Um, this episode is no different. Uh, so we have no idea what you're going to talk about. Chris, what, 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 what are you doing? Who are you? What are you doing? And why you are here? Who am I? What am I doing? Uh, what am I doing here? Oh, the great questions of life. Um, so the, the, the day job that I have is principal technical marketing manager at Red Hat on the OpenShift team. So I spend a lot of time helping people help customers uh, deliver OpenShift. And that could be in any form from on-premises, in the cloud, or our dedicated service. Um, helping build demos and content around things that you can do with OpenShift and Kubernetes. Um, as well as, you know, how to do certain workloads in Kubernetes or OpenShift. Um, a lot of my work kind of spans the open source and uh, business side of things. So I kind of have to wear multiple hats and see things through the different lenses at times. And that can be hard, at, uh, you know, every once in a while, uh, you know, when you're prioritizing things. But the, 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 I kind of split between the, the paid uh, customer world and the open source world. And I think it provides a nice balance between the two, to be honest with you. What's the, uh, what's the coolest open source project you've worked with in uh, uh, the mean, courses of your duties? Funniest, the, most, uh, funniest, most actually well, technically impressive, whatever. I mean, uh, so... Um, I mean, I'm a Kubernetes org member and everything, right? Like that's my community right now. I'm trying to think back. I mean, Ansible, I was a part of that community for a while. I was on the Ansible team before joining the OpenShift team. I loved working in that community, especially uh, like the in-person events, um, the, the contributor meetings and such, because there was a sense of getting things done, a sense of like you're helping people actually automate and solve problems. And I get a lot of that with Kubernetes too, just on like a, a different scale, I guess. Um, but the 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 light bulbs that came on for some people when working with Ansible was really cool. And like the light bulbs, you know, also click with Kubernetes, of course, but it takes a little bit longer to get there sometimes. There's um, more of a learning curve with Kubernetes. Yeah, there's like, definitely like, a steeper learning curve. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like I remember <laughs> when I first learned Ansible and it took me, you know, a couple of days to mm -hmm. get my head around it. And then it felt like it revolutionized laziness for me. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Kubernetes, it took like, considerably longer for me to like get my shit together. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it is, it is a beast. Um, and it's not just the, the 
Kubernetes, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Kubernetes is just the beginning, right? Like it's the, the foundational layer of kind of any cloud native platform. So you have to bolt and add on some different parts and pieces too from that lovely CNCF landscape uh, to actually make like a good coherent, you know, actual enterprise ready platform kind of deal that people can actually use for production workloads. So yep. yeah, like just Kubernetes isn't enough anymore. You have to actually add in some other Prometheus bits and, you know, maybe you want some virtualization capabilities or maybe you want some, you know, better tracing or uh, service mesh or, you know, service mesh. Yes. yeah, uh, all these things. Um, you know, and, and adding those bits on, like it, th those aren't trivial either, right? Like no, when no. I think about, uh, you know, sysadmin, uh, SRE DevOps type people, right? Like that evolution of skills, right? Like drop Istio on them and that'll definitely be like, okay, I don't know everything. Let me figure out something, <laughs> right? Like you will always find somebody that doesn't understand some part of Istio because of all the different pieces it encompasses. No, and like, for sure. There's huge parts of it that I don't understand. Right, same here. So it's like, you know, mutual TLS, like I understand the why. I don't understand the how, right? Like, no, that's black magic. I don't know how you do that. And I don't necessarily care to know how you do that just as long as you do it in a like approved and valid cryptographically way. Like that's cool. No, um, you hire an expert to babysit that specific thing yeah like thank you for cert manager thank you for all the wonderful tooling that makes managing certificates and kubernetes a lot easier but uh actually getting down to the nuts and bolts and troubleshooting each each individual piece of kubernetes is um potentially a career in and of itself right yeah, like for sure you know, like when you, if you look at linux six at linux sysadmins like you know 10 15 years ago like istio admin would have been a similar like skill set back then uh, you know, using the titles of your today kind of thing. For sure. And so you've like, Kubernetes is not enough anymore. You got to bolt all this extra stuff onto it to make it like an enterprise scale solution. But how do you avoid that becoming like the infrastructure equivalent of spaghetti code? Like how, how do you yeah. keep that from being a clusterfuck from an administrative standpoint? Well, it's hard. Um, you have to actually adopt uh, some very, I mean, so start from the beginning. I think that Kubernetes uh, like is a tool that enables DevOps, right? Like it kind of forces people to push a more DevOps uh, kind of philosophy in their organizations. So once you are going down this road, you quickly realize like, I need infrastructure as code. I need some CICD tools. I need all these things. And like all these things can live in Kubernetes too, but you have to be able to um, manage all the YAML that you're about to generate in a coherent and consistent way. And uh, there's a lot of opinions on that. I, I am of the mind uh, that, you know, obviously I work for a vendor. I would prefer to use my vendor solution because it is click button for me, but I am of the mind that more people will be doing the, the please provide me Kubernetes cluster here kind of thing uh, much more frequently than um, standing up like, oh, I'm going to download the tarball from GitHub Kubernetes and start standing up, you know, a cluster, you know, by hand kind of thing. I feel like there's going to be a lot more room for the, the Kubernetes distributions, for lack of a better word, uh, here in the near future because of things like I need monitoring built in, like from the get-go, because I don't necessarily understand this stuff. And sure. this goes into my question that I wanted to ask very in the beginning, but now it actually makes even more sense. What is OpenShift? Is it somehow solves those problems? 
Yes. So OpenShift takes Kubernetes and it turns it to 11, I feel like. Um, the, 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 the bits and pieces that you kind of get out of the box with OpenShift includes monitoring, logging, um, you know, operator capabilities that allow you to bring in other applications and workloads to you know, run infrastructure for you. Uh, go to operatorhub.io to figure out, you know, all the fun things you can run at the push of a button there. And then um, the, the amount of, of, of testing, security, and uh, just hardening that we do on the Kubernetes code base is quite remarkable. And the fact that we're trying to get it down to where it's uh, almost marching lockstep with upstream Kubernetes releases. I, I think in the coming future of OpenShift, that'll be the thing. Uh, I think that only makes it an even better platform because people running Kubernetes are always told, run the latest version of Kubernetes. And if you look at a lot of cloud providers right now, they're not doing that. And they're trying to have to figure out like, oh, there's this major vulnerability. We have to patch it. And it's, yeah, it's hard. Um, doing that on your own is even harder. So OpenShift builds in a lot of the lifecycle and upgrading of not only applications, but uh, the clusters themselves. Uh, a lot of the upgrading and maintenance you can do on the fly um, in the administrator console. So that provides organizations with like this enterprise application platform that is you know, tried, trusted, true from Red Hat, supported by you know, one of the top contributors to Kubernetes. So it's... It's building on top of Kubernetes a ton of functionality that users just expect out of the box now. So the the idea of you know standing up an OpenShift cluster and getting to work right away, as opposed to standing up a Kubernetes cluster and then having to stand up some other things inside of it, is now feasible. Exactly. Hmm. And is it like there are a lot of cloud providers that gives you that they give you kind of useful or usable Kubernetes with all the things around it, but then you kind of tie to their to their cluster to their cloud. Yeah, you have to plug things in from their cloud, like you know, for AWS. Yeah. So CloudWatch, and, and, you have to do all these other weird things potentially, and you know, Stackdriver or some other you know yeah. thing that you're not necessarily familiar with, right? That's exactly what I meant. And and OpenShift is different in uh, from from those how. So we use uh, upstream projects, and we you know bring them in and. Uh, have them integrated into the platform, right? So for example, our service mesh uh, tool in integrates Istio, uh, Kiali, and uh, I always forget the third one. Um, anyways, it, three open source tools that come from the CNCF landscape themselves. And they're integrated, they are you know, configured to work together, uh, push button install, off, off you go, you have three cloud native or CNCF landscape projects up and running, integrated, working together as they should in one push button as opposed to potentially hundreds of commands. Um, that I think is the true power of OpenShift is giving you that capability to say, push button, I want HA Postgres cluster, push button, I want Jenkins running on you know every cluster with an extra worker here and there kind of deal, right? Like it gives you the ability to be, uh, productive much faster than doing it all your own or even gluing together in my opinion the the bits and pieces from the cloud providers mm -hmm. and then i tied i locked in into this red hat cloud mm. yes so red hat cloud is a newish thing that's coming along and we're working on not just um like openshift dedicated where we manage it for you but uh, a number of 
cloud solutions that include Automation Hub, which is uh, the Ansible automation bits and pieces, as well as uh, Operator Hub, which I mentioned earlier. But it is essentially, if you're not familiar with what an operator is, it's kind of the, the pattern that we use within Kubernetes to build things inside, or the pattern within OpenShift that we use to build things. Uh, it is a Kubernetes pattern. Um, mm -hmm. So the operator pattern was developed by CoreOS before Red Hat acquired them. And essentially what it is, is you create a you know custom resource that has some logic to handle something uh, after an event occurs. So it watches right. the event logs in Kubernetes and it is waiting for you know some kind of match of some sort or some kind of action to take place for it to say, oh, do something. Um, OpenShift is packed full of these operators and it, it does everything from installing the dashboard to installing the, the, the different console views and uh, the whole nine yards behind all the different bits and pieces of logging and metrics that we put into OpenShift. All those are instantiated with operators. What that allows us to do is completely decouple the platform from itself, right? Like we don't have to say, oh, you know, we have to do something in the Istio directory in this code base right now to update the release. We can actually say, well, we're just going to update this operator. And all you have to do is update your operator to this version and pin that operator version to this version of OpenShift done, right? So if we want to install a new dashboard, we simply modify the CRD to say, pull, you know, this image as opposed to that image, or, um, you know, use these permissions versus those permissions. And boom, it's updated. And that is quite powerful in the sense of, uh, you know, the operator framework has, you can write operators in Go, Python. Uh, you can even write them in Ansible. So think about you're inside your cluster, you're using an operator, and all of a sudden you need to touch something outside your cluster, like a cloud service, for example, or maybe an external load balancer that, you know, isn't, you know, it's on your network boundary, for example, and you need to, like, update a port group or something, a VIP. Uh, Using an Ansible operator, you could potentially, you know, have it running inside your cluster, watch for an event, and then say, okay, go do this thing outside the cluster using an Ansible module. That, I feel like, is, you know, sysadmin, Kubernetes, DevOps, next level type stuff. That's pretty cool. But then cool. you get into, yeah, like, you get into that, and, like, you're, you're, you're realizing that now you have this extreme power that's, you know, possible, essentially, right, with CRs and CRDs. And like now there's the, it might be uh, not over rotating on operators, but trying to put too much logic into an operator, right? Like operators should be lightweight, single purpose, like Unix style things. They shouldn't have like, I mean, yeah, they could handle multiple exceptions potentially, but you shouldn't really have necessarily like, I have this massive operator that does all these different things and includes some application and business logic too, right? Like that should be fully decoupled, right? You're using Kubernetes and containers for this reason, right? Like decouple your business logic from your operational logic, please. Don't you know, build like, a monolith in your microservice. Right. Don't build a monolithic <laughs> operator inside your Kubernetes cluster, right? Like it's just, <laughs> yeah. So like I've seen some operators lately, uh, more recently that are like really big and have, uh, you know, some application logic behind it, as some people have shown me. And it's kind of like, you know, I understand the why. Point. <laughs> yeah, I understand why you did it because you can, and it's super easy to do it this way. But is that like the right thing to do? Hmm. Probably not. Maybe, maybe not, right? Like if it's the right thing to do because you couldn't update the code base potentially, sure, right? Like if it's some legacy code, cool. You know, knock yourself out. If you want to touch the code base, you can now touch things inside Kubernetes with this legacy code base in a CRD or operator. Um, but like try to steer away from that, right? Like decouple yeah. as much as possible. Because like I said, you know, you upgrade one operator, you can upgrade a whole bunch of stuff. 
to the user, it looks like a whole bunch of stuff, but to you, it's only changing an operator. Yep. <laughs> and and it also allows you to to decouple those solutions from a particular provider or a particular mm-hmm. cloud and not because operators are the standard thing which are completely portable as opposite to other scaffolding that mm-hmm. you might want to build tie everything together which will be more proprietary locking and everything with operators it's actually a standard way to mm-hmm tie together those kind of solutions from diff- from the landscape, from the CNCF landscape. Absolutely. The, the, yep. the operator pattern itself, I feel like, is um, something that you're going to see more and more of because it does um, ops in a Kubernetes native way. It allows for ops in a Kubernetes native way, whereas before, you know, you might have had to write an application in Go to get something done inside the cluster. Now you don't mm-hmm. necessarily have to. Um, you know, if you need to just do some normal Kubernetes commands type things, that's actually really easy to do inside of an operator, uh, you know, with any number of the, the, the programming languages or DSLs that are available. So uh, anybody out there can, I feel like if you have, you know, some skills, you can write an operator. But like I said, don't go overboard. <laughs> don't defeat the whole purpose of using this tool in the first place. I right. mean, I guess sometimes I do just... With, with side projects, like personal projects, sometimes I will mm-hmm. like intentionally build a monolith because I think that it's just more, more hassle than it's worth to break something out into microservices. But if you're using OpenShift, you're coming to Red Hat, presumably you are trying to do something at scale. Right. Yeah, and, that's the big thing, right? Like scale, right? Yeah. The, the, the Kubernetes scale, I don't think... Like you talk, there's that meme on the internet of uh, the the empty tractor trailer bed with like the tiny little dump truck on it, the toy dump truck. <laughs> that's like, hey, I installed yeah. my WordPress cluster on uh, Kubernetes. Yay me! Um, that's cool, right? Like, but like you could have really put that on one box, right? Think about the yeah. number of users you're going to have on an enterprise application scale. That's why Kubernetes exists, right? Democratizing cloud. That's why Kubernetes exists, right? Like making this thing. Um, this thing uh, making the cloud more portable than it used to be right like it's not necessarily going to get you completely out of vendor lock-in in all cases but it's definitely going to help you get out of vendor lock-in where you need to be out of vendor lock-in for sure um there's still some you know cloud services that we integrate with uh because there's not necessarily a way to do them well in kubernetes right like um you, know, you can do a ton of networking in kubernetes but we definitely don't recommend exposing your entire cluster to the public Right. Nope. So <laughs> the the idea of having operators manage the out, outside bits of the web service, I think, is uh, very intriguing to a lot of people. Yeah, especially with all the uh, at least on my Twitter, uh, so I follow so many infosec people. Uh, there's always a ton of chatter about uh, attacking Kubernetes clusters. Yeah. Yeah. So just Kubernetes networking in general makes me super nervous because I don't feel qualified to do that securely mm-hmm. so somebody or something else has to babysit that for me that's one yeah, of the, the good usages of of stuff like you know like kubernetes services that yeah allegedly took care of that for you mm-hmm. yeah so we're using uh Maltus, which is like a networking stack that you know, it's designed to work inside Kubernetes, a cloud-native networking stack that's supposed to open up software-defined networking and all these other uh, fun knobs and levers that you can tweak 
Kubernetes networking with. And I mean, be honest with you, I haven't done network engineering in a long time. Um, <laughs> the biggest network I've managed uh, in the past 11 years is probably the one I'm on right now. That's not true. But, you know, like it's been a while since I've touched like, a that. Cisco device. Didn't you right? have like, DNS problems like just before joining the podcast? Just saying. Yeah, like I couldn't resolve DNS issues. Like, I, who knows, <laughs> right? Like, work from home. Who knows what was going on? But it was like three minutes I had no DNS, right? Like, I don't necessarily, you know, want to have to troubleshoot issues like that, right? Like, I need something to handle that for me. Um, and that's where we bring in Maltus, right? Like, and yeah, you have to configure Maltus to do the things you want, but we have a lot of guides for that. A lot of ways to do this kind of out of the box um and the, the the beauty of multis is that you know it's software defined networking as new features come on board in the networking stack you don't necessarily have to like upgrade an entire like switch stack or anything else right like you for in our case you just run the new operator done right like off you go you just run actually don't run the quote new operator you run the same operator that has been updated in the background so yeah the the idea of you know updating multiple components within Kubernetes, right? Like you got the networking stack, the storage stack, all these dif different bits and pieces are also enabled by operators mm -hmm. because you can now decoupling all those bits and pieces and you can test and make sure that each new upgrade works with each and the other pieces and you know having these all versioned, you can have you know supported versions of everything historically as well. Um, yeah, and that goes back to the whole how do you manage this from a DevOps perspective? You are going down like this, you know, uh, quote, vanilla Kubernetes route, right? You have yeah. to have instantiated some kind of way to wrangle all the YAML, version it, and then not only version like the, the individual YAML files themselves, but like have versioned configurations. Uh, these yeah. groups of YAML files are all certified to work together kind of deal, right? Because the last thing you want, or the last thing you want to have happen is Oh, I've got everything upgraded, everything running. It's all good except this one service, monitoring. <laughs> that's just not working quite right. And there's some incompatibility buried way deep in the event log right when the cluster booted up, and now you've got to go find it. And, oh, yeah, the monitoring stack's not there to help you, so you're spelunking. Good luck. Looking for, you know, some log in a pod somewhere. So, yeah, like having all the bits and pieces there for you out of the box tested and put together is the way to run Kubernetes, in my opinion, because there's just too much for any one person to completely understand the entire stack. So and it's all in YAML, by the way. Oh, uh, yeah, it's all in YAML, so you can go read it, which is great, but if you don't understand it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. We do there, love it, YAML. I mean, I love some well, YAML. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love some Toml too, but like the, the amount of YAML I write, I think qualifies me as a YAML engineer now. Um, yeah. yeah, pretty much. You gonna change your Twitter bio now? Uh, I think I had that as well, like yeah. YAML Wrangler or something like that. But yeah, I could, I could maybe say uh, Kubernetes. Really YAML that. engineer, senior, senior YAML engineer. Senior, can you distinguish the YAML engineer? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can you can you spot can you spot the misalignment of the? Yeah, of the can you see the white space just by looking on it? That's what <laughs> qualifies you as a senior YAML engineer. So, so I I can only notice two white spaces, so I'm not senior yet. I can only do, like. Like oh, if I can notice okay. one white space, does that make me senior? Right. Yeah, exactly. That's that's distinguished YAML engineer. Okay. I oh, would I would give senior for two and distinguish for one. Okay, I'll take senior. Yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. Okay. All right. There we go. Wow. Yeah. Change your LinkedIn job title. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wonder if that would actually get some hits. Actually, I would probably get hits regardless because. Oh, for sure. Yeah, like a lot. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> a lot. That's for sure. Um. Put your CNCF ambassador hat uh, on for a sec. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the what is the most exciting new CNCF project you've seen lately? Ooh, wow. There's, I mean, there's a lot, right? Like, um, hmm. I mean, I like, I've always liked like some of the underlying stuff that's maybe not as popular, like Core DNS. I really like Core DNS. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not necessarily like this tried and true like bind server, but boy, is it way easier to configure than bind. Um, what's what's Core DNS? Uh, wait so Core DNS is the CNCF project that actually drives the DNS servers inside Kubernetes, right? So if you you can run Core DNS independently, right? Like on your own server locally, right? Um, I know I know some people that are using Core DNS just as like a DNS TLS forwarder, right? So they have a local resolver that just forwards everything on to a TLS DNS endpoint. Um, but you can also have cloud DNS or core DNS running inside your mm. cluster and, you know, it's managing all the DNS records and everything inside there for you. It's pretty slick. I like it. It's simple to use in my opinion and, um, it's very stable. Uh, so yeah, it's a graduated project already. And there's Prometheus, the old tried and true Prometheus, right? Like that, I, I think the, the origin story of Prometheus is the, one of the cooler things, right? Cause they were... Kubernetes and Prometheus were developed independently, uh, but they worked so well together because of the similar concepts that they were grappling with at the time or similar problems they were trying to solve at the time. Um, and that just gets better and better and better, right? And, you know, the, 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 the add-ons that you get with Prometheus and having the dashboards available to you and customizable for you, um, I feel like is really, really powerful stuff, right? Prometheus is a really good name too. Like I know that's a that's a stupid and like petty thing to get focused on, but Prometheus <laughs> is a really good name for an open source mm-hmm. project. They they oh, yeah. they sat there and thought about it and came up with something really cool. I mean, it's better than I, Velociraptor, that's for sure. It I wonder if it if it if it actually has a meaning regarding what they do, or is it just a cool name? Uh, I'm sure it has some kind of meaning to them. Would it not? No, but I mean for a cut when you're when you're saying it's a cool name, does it doesn't matter if it No, has... it's just it's just dramatic. Uh-huh. It's dramatic without being like too edgy, you know? It's dramatic mm. without having the like kind of Molgoth flavor. Yeah. But you, you don't care much that it doesn't explain in any way what this project is about. No. I yeah. mean what does JFrog mean? Well, JFrog not much, but think about the product names. Artifactory means yeah. oh, those, yeah. X-ray we, means something. We're very so, into uh, explicitly descriptive product names. Yeah. For sure. Well, yeah, the cleverest one of them all was Artifactory. It was like a yeah. gameplay, but since then it's all, it's all plain. Well, Bintray was kind of trying to be clever uh, until we discovered that bin has only one meaning in British English, and that's a trash bin. Yeah. Uh, but that was too late by then. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, since then we stopped trying being clever and it's all like very upfront. Mm-hmm. So X-ray, mission control, very like in your I, face. I don't know if I have a preference, right? Like I just like them to be easily rememberable, <laughs> if that makes sense, right? Like so Prometheus is obviously very rememberable. Core DNS is probably not as rememberable. So yeah. It rolls off the tongue well though. That's true, right? Core like, DNS, it rolls off the tongue well. You know, it's better than projects that like they they do something weird with the spelling that's not very yeah. intuitive and then that's always like it's you can't just go to their project's website you have to google it misspelled and let oh, yeah. google redirect mm. you oh yeah the the oh my god what is this website i just landed on yeah that's yeah. and you know yeah. all those all those missing valves 
that you're yeah. never sure yeah, which yeah, yeah. one is actually yeah. useful for me. Drop Laval. That's always fun. Yeah. 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 Which which one you should actually drop because it pronounced the same as the real word. Mm-hmm. And then you yeah, try to Google the real word that. and it doesn't make sense. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... So, you know, like naming things is hard, right? Like it we is. always say that. Um, so like when you start putting restrictions on naming, like I feel like that makes it even harder. Yeah. Um, obviously, but like the the idea that uh, like Google, right? Like brand name that came out of you know a number, right? Like, yeah, and then they didn't spell it like the number, right? Right, exactly. So like doing something like that, I feel like is great because it is original, but it is based on something and it does have a meaning, right? Like yeah. there's lots of available, uh, you know, search results here uh, on Google, but the, 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 the intentional dropping of vowels from regular words, yeah, it's, I mean... It's not annoying, but it is uh, it is like a slightly more difficult way of getting to things, if that makes sense. But think yeah. about it from their perspective. There's not a lot of words left in the English language you can name a business, right? Like it's true. You got to start making up words at some point. Yeah. Well, yeah. so look at look at Kubernetes and all this uh, industry that beat the Greek navigation theme to death. Oh yeah. Man. Yeah. On the um, subject of Kubernetes, is it Kube Cuddle? So. Or CubeCTL? I say CubeCuddle. And I have been corrected okay. once. It is CubeCuddle. Okay. Um, but then there's the whole cuddle versus cuddle debate, right? Like, yeah, is it a cuddlefish or are we like cuddling? Cuddlefish, right? Like, so yeah, if, you, if, if you're like me and you're from the South and you kind of don't delineate too much between T's and D's, they, yeah, they sound the same to me. Yeah, exactly. So if, if, if you're, you know, not from around these parts, uh, like it, everybody else is not from here, um, it's, you know, very, very obvious what you're saying sometimes. So that's where the, the cube versus cube thing came in. Um, but yeah, cuddle versus CTL versus cuddle. I don't necessarily have a preference. I like to cuddle my clusters because they should love me uh, like I love yeah. them. So and you want to be, su- you want to be a supportive parent. Exactly, right? Like, these are my cubes, you know, like, (laughs) they might come and go as they please, but these are my cubes, and I should cuddle them, you know, at night (laughs) and make sure they're healthy and and happy. Yes. (laughs) If you cuddle your cubes more, less pages. That's what I hear. I hadn't settled on a pronunciation yet. I I just kind of avoid saying it if I can. So uh, what was it? I think it was last year at KubeCon. I actually like said something different every time I said it. Just yeah. to like see if people would catch, <laughs> right? Just to see what they would say. I didn't do it during like new contributor workshop or anything, but like I intentionally like having like the side conversations in the hallway track. I intentionally like said it differently every time. I no one no one really like said like, oh, like this is how you should say it. Like try it on stage. I I watched a, a talk at a Python conference in like January. Um, it's, it's Python. So there was no YAML involved mm-hmm. or Kubernetes involved, but there was a lot of JSON and I say JSON, but she said oh. JSON, Jason, and once Johnson. Johnson. Never Johnson. heard that one before. That's, so that one was what one. made me convinced that she was messing with the crowd by pronouncing oh, she, it differently oh, every time. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Especially if you use that later in the talk, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. If she would have called it Johnson from the beginning, that might've been more fun though. Because then you really wouldn't have known what she was talking about, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll try that. I'll Ooh. try that. Just commit to calling it Johnson for an entire talk. You Start know what will happen. You know what will happen. 
bunch of uh, people will come to you after the talk and tell you that this is not how oh, you pronounce Or they'll stand up in the middle of it, right? Yeah. yeah. That's what we do now. Yeah. Or ask exactly. the question. Hey, uh, I don't have a question, but I just want to correct you on something. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's my favorite. Exactly. This, yeah. this, yes. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll just lean into it. Just, just there you double go. Down. Just double down. Nope, that's just what I call down. it. Double down. That's what I call it. Sorry, that's how I learned it. <laughs> yeah, this is this is what I know. Yep. yep. So my high school, you know, C C S instructor told me. You know, sorry. Yeah, and it just stuck around. And if he thinks I'm uh, I'm an idiot and he can't catch the joke, then not my problem. Right. Oh, yeah. so many people won't trust me. No. So I, uh, I think somebody was trolling me at uh, Swamp Up last year. They actually came up to me. I did this huge uh, Star Wars theme talk, and they came up to me, and they're like, I've never seen so much Star Trek integrated into one talk before. And I just kind of looked at them, <laughs> and I was just like, not, not today. <laughs> it wasn't an employee, was it? No, 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 no. no. Oh, God. Uh, but I was just like, oh, either you're trolling me or you're joking with me, or... I have to explain yeah, Star Wars versus Star Trek to you, which is what I really don't want to do right now. So it's kind of a cringe <laughs> joke, honestly. Like I mean, if, if they were joking, that's kind of cringe. But no, I can I can understand like the the it was not a native English speaker, so I can understand like the the oh, mismatch maybe, Trek and Wars. Yeah. So like that helped a lot, right? Like so, yeah. I just kind of like brushed it off and moved forward. But yeah, the 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 Star Trek Star Wars stuff. It's like who who cares? Like you could like both. You know, like you can like too. both. You can like both. I'm personally never interested in having that argument because I don't care. Right. Uh, like I don't care. Enough. I think it's a it's a dumb thing to fight about personally. But what was your uh, what was your Star Wars talk? Uh oh. The dark star. The dark dark side, dark side of, DevOps. of DevOps. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Yep. What Let's is see. the dark side of DevOps, Chris? So uh, I actually, uh, if you look at my LinkedIn profile or resume, there's. Uh, you know, before joining Red Hat, there's obviously some jumping around. Uh, part of that was due to like salary increases, right? Like I was an Air Force veteran. I got out of the Air Force. I was underpaid, you know, had to change jobs to get, you know, pay raises basically. Tech industry. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's how it goes sometimes in the tech industry. But then uh, some of those jobs were not exactly uh, great DevOps situations and more of the DevOps nightmare type. So I took an approach of looking at things from like, I had a ops mutiny uh, at one job uh, where they were basically like one day they just all stood up and quit except for like two people. Oh, fuck. Uh, yeah, because they were adopting DevOps and I was brought in to be the DevOps lead and that job did not last long at all. Uh, and I don't even put it on my resume anymore because it's just not worth talking about unless it's in this context of a podcast because it was... Uh, I think three or four, no, six weeks. And uh, basically it ended with me saying, right, like, I don't think uh, you understand how much is really broken here. Um, like you need to get a lot of stuff fixed very quickly. And I don't know if this is the team to do it. And the the senior vice president looked at me. It was, and this was literally the week before Christmas. And he was like, we can let them all go right now if you want. Oh, shit, dude. I was like, and I'm done because now I'm not morally okay with this position anymore. <laughs> that is just like, brutal. Yeah, like I mean, but they were so they had got acquired by a large company uh, for a billion dollars, and they were under the gun to deliver, and you know they they never did. Um, so yeah, the company's uh, I, I'm not the, the acquisition was written down, and yeah, it, it's pretty wild uh, what all happened there. But I mean, 
to give you an idea of how bad it was, uh, one of the first outages we had while I worked there was because the uh, the this was a production outage. The AC unit in the comm closet or the the data center inside of our building, you know, the small footprint that we were supposed to have inside of our building, uh, was leaking water, and that took down a production workload because somehow they had put production workloads in the office building, like, you know, in the regular leased strip mall or not strip mall, but strip office kind of complex scenario, right? Like they had actual like vSphere running inside there with some production workloads and the AC was leaking. The AC had been leaky for years, had never been fixed, right? Like, so it's just like just number of things where it's like, y'all have like systemic issues around this. Like there needs to be some major changes that happen here. And like, I don't know if you're capable of doing it. So I'm out. Yeah. It's not the team's fault. It's a, that's, that's an organizational problem. That right. That I yeah, feel it was so bad good. for those engineers. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, like it was not fun. I mean, there was a lot of other fun, unpleasant stuff that I had to do too, but like that was that side of it, right? The ops mutiny side. And then there was like the more fun side, uh, I feel like is the dev uh, kind of like uprising side, right? Like we're going to do DevOps, come hell or high water, you ops people. Um, <laughs> so I worked at uh, Duke Health System. So Duke University has a hospital system. I worked under their uh, Office of Research Informatics. So as you can imagine, it's a lot of lab equipment. It's a lot of, you know, actual like medical research happening. So lots of, lots of regulatory requirements, right? And, you know, when I went to the head of IT when I first got there, not head of IT, but like the senior vice president of something, something IT at Duke, I was just like, you know what? I really need uh, API-driven infrastructure, right? Like I need APIs around all this stuff so I don't have to wait six months for a VM because to be honest with you, you know, we're going to get a grant next week and I don't have time to wait. You know, right? Like, I really don't have time to wait. We need to use the grant money. So waiting six months for a VM is just not fun. And uh, like, the guy was just dumbfounded. Like, you want to be able to manage infrastructure yourself? That's crazy. And I was just, hmm, okay, that's cool. So the devs were working on this new uh, service uh, to process data. And uh, they needed uh, compute, a lot of compute. Uh, But you know, they knew that the data coming in was going to be anonymized and sanitized. So they would verify that and then throw all the compute work off to Heroku and then Mm -hmm. bring the outputs and everything in-house and keep all the storage in-house and everything else was in-house minus that compute piece of anonymized data. So uh, they wrote up everything. They wrote up all the requirements, did all the docs, did everything in their, you know, ITSM way and, you know, had every I dotted and T crossed, but we always mentioned that this was cloud related and the edict from on high was no cloud no aws no azure no nothing even though they had like you know supported uh hipaa compliant you know products or infrastructure services that they could provide yeah how long don't use it can't use it this was like 2015 i mean this was not a long time ago that's really recent for a company to still be like Scared of the yeah, cloud. No cloud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and like, especially like... Uh, there are system. a lot of companies that scare, that are scared of the cloud, like today. Yeah, Just, I mean... Uh, I like, mean, ask Shlomi, Shlomi Ziv, our cloud, whatever, VP, I'm not sure his title. Uh, well, I talked to... And, and, and he, he can tell you stories about people saying, well, no, we cannot 
trust this data to the cloud. It's too dangerous. We don't have control. Mm -hmm. We don't know who is going to uh, access it as right. if whatever they build in-house is more secure. So, yeah, and like in my opinion, right, like having worked in government, right, like I get their need, um, but like, you know, Duke Medical Research, like their their jobs were to disseminate research and to protect user privacy, right? So um, disseminating the research, right? Like why not do that with the cloud? Uh, processing it, if you can already anonymize it and sanitize it in a way that you could process it anywhere, Just do and it you can cloud. verify that, what does it matter? Well, that was the beautiful part, right? Like they said, we were doing cloud. And, you know, we made sure that we said, you know, it's Heroku, it's these IP addresses, it's the whole nine yards, and they actually approved it. So it was kind of like egg in their face because we were 100% honest in what we wanted to do and how we were going to do it. And they were, you know, saying from on high, like no cloud, no cloud, no cloud, but they were literally just pencil whipping all the paperwork as it came through. And it was like, okay, so we've proven that all this process is solely for the sake of process. So <laughs> once we get past that, and now we have all this stuff running in the cloud and they were smart. They got a, lot of, a bunch of scientists and doctors on board first because that's what really drives things inside of a health system are the doctors. Um, and they were like, yep, we're using this. We love this. This is great. The storage service is amazing. You know, processing this stuff out here is great too. Uh, it's fast. It's, you know, reliable. Um, you know, can we connect this into our data, you know, stores and stuff? And it, yeah, it was like it was scaling up at that point. Uh, but meanwhile, the ITSM org was like, oh, what do we do? They're out in the cloud. Blah, 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 blah. So they actually opened it up, right? They said, hey, if you have, you know, applications that can work in the cloud and you have, you know, we have these HIPAA compliant, like infrastructure providers, uh, please use them. And, you know, so it got better as a result, like that, that dev kind of, uh, you know, screw you, we're going to do it our way kind of thing actually worked out. Um, and because data never actually like, you know, protected data never actually left the boundary, everything was safe. They did everything encrypted anyway. Right. So even if it did get like packet sniffed, it would be really hard to de you know, decouple or decrypt it. Um, yeah. And it was just like this really, really cool kind of not, it wasn't cool for the ITSM people, right? Like they were not happy, but it was a cool way to say, all right, like even here, DevOps will work if you just let it. I mean, DevOps is really just, ultimately it's, it's making things more efficient and, uh, you know, less likely to break as a result of repetition. So mm -hmm. like what, I, I don't understand why anybody would not want to, uh, be better more often and be bad less often. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Like that's, it's, but it's a, it's, it's a sea change for a lot of people. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, if, if you would have told me like DevOps was a way to do things in 1995, when I first got started, I would have said that's not possible because it wasn't back then. Right. Like technologically it wasn't feasible to have all this stuff interconnected because hell the, the bandwidth costs alone would be a fortune. So um, the, 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 the skill sets that you learn now kind of early in your career stick with you. So don't forget that, right? Like always, I think that's the best part about DevOps is that it teaches you to be a continuous learner. That way you don't get kind of stuck in that, oh, this is the way to nail the hammer into the wood kind of thing. And so this is the way I'm going to nail the hammer in the wood every time I do it kind of deal. Oh, yeah. what's this nail gun thing? I don't need it anymore, right? Like, <laughs> nope, give me that nail gun. Let me stamp this thing down in half the time and move on to the next thing. 
Yeah, but it's also a lot about uh, job security, right? As you mentioned, it comes sure. together with the people that the people don't want to learn. They know this this way and they kind of afraid that whatever comes next is going to automate them out of the business. Uh, and, and it's also a lot about activation energy. What we have now works. We need mm-hmm. to put tons of effort into switching from it. So unless... Uh, you know, some catastrophic failure happens that will move us out of this comfort zone. Um, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard for people and especially hard for organizations because of the complexity of them to, to, to make those changes. So I feel, I feel for people who are, you know, struggle with adopting DevOps in organizations. I don't think it's as easy as we mm-hmm. picture it or want yeah. it to be. Uh, I mean, the first organization I worked in when I came out of the Air Force, they were practicing like a DevOps light kind of philosophy. And like, it was very difficult to understand how everything was put together um, at first. But once I got it, I got it, right? So I feel like it's one of those things like DevOps, you know, is a way of doing things. It is, you know, just like operators, it's a pattern, right? Like it's a way of doing something. And it is more than likely better than a lot of ways we've done it in the past. It will probably get replaced by some better ways to do things in the future. And I think we're starting to see some of that already with some of the stuff in the CNCF ecosystem. So the, 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 to me, the idea of I stop learning at some point is like foreign to me, right? Like, um, you know, my father, he, he retired and he was like, I'm done learning. And I was like, I don't think it's going to work. Right. Like in the second, in the second, uh, he needed like different internet access and like all of a sudden his web browser didn't work because he hadn't updated anything. I was like, yeah, oh no, that's not going to work. Here's why you have to learn how to use this new web browser because guess what? The other one's outdated and this is the new thing that is secure and that thing is not. So you have to learn the new thing unless you want your data compromised. And that's when he kind of realized like, okay, yeah, I have to do more learning on it stuff than, you know, I was expecting to do in retirement. Yeah, the the world is moving faster, and obviously we need to learn new things. That's for sure. Um, but you know, the cloud native directly uh, interact with. Yeah, the cloud native uh, landscape doesn't make it easy for us. The amount of complexity uh, it it rises all the time. Yeah, I mean, complexity is a beast, right? Like, so speaking of you know if you want to give the the best use case i think of complexity for openshift that i can give is we have a number of uh customers that like to run openshift in a disconnected environment meaning mm-hmm. no internet access right like mm-hmm. makes perfect sense if you're doing any kind of proprietary manufacturing or any kind of patented work also it makes a lot of sense for government and defense and you know any number of kind of highly prized targets for, you know, hackers or anything else. Right. So, you know, like if you were a, um, you know, a defense company and like, you know, let's say you made missiles, you wouldn't necessarily want those missile plans getting out anywhere ever. So they actually do all the work in a disconnected environment. Now that is hard, right? Like going from OpenShift has operator hub, OpenShift has all these things built into it that do, you know, and can call out to the internet to bring in more stuff for your cluster. Uh, making that available in an offline mode is something that we had to do very early on and it was not trivial at all. Um, I mean, yes, now we have some guides and things like that and it's all fun and dandy, but like uh, operator lifecycle manager is a tool that is, you know, baked into OpenShift to, you know, handle some of the operator, you know, ins and outs and it's lifecycle of the operators themselves. So like 
having that thing instantiated in an offline mode um, required a lot of different, you know, thoughts to be done uh, that weren't initially thought of. And, you know, you and I wouldn't normally think about them on a regular basis either, unless we were in that kind of environment. Yeah. So, so I mean, you have to keep that in mind, right? Like who's yeah, we, using we are very familiar with the air gap scenarios just because, mm-hmm. you know, artifact management is also something that, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Don't, no, y'all don't, are probably more familiar with it than I am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Define uh, kind of require require air gap and disconnected scenarios. So yeah, I I hear you. That's not easy to solve. Uh, we uh, for Artifactory as it, as it uh, was born as an open source, tiny, straightforward product. It wasn't baked in from day one. Although we had to adapt it very early for other products that are um, that came after we realized the maturity of the market. It was obviously a design requirement from from the beginning, mm-hmm. right? So for example, stuff like X-ray. How do you update security right. vulnerability databases? This was all yeah, from uh, yeah, one. and like those need to be updated. Fairly regularly, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, and I think, you know, one of the coolest parts of my job is to participate with customers or, you know, our our solutions architects that are doing things in the field. And then uh, going to the community side and saying, like, we just stood up uh, in CNCF uh, an air gap working group. And um, like that, I was able to bring in some of our customers and say, hey, I know this is open, uh, but I think y'all would have a lot to give here and a lot to gain from participating in these, these working groups. Um, just having that kind of thought process out in the community already is very, very helpful because that gets people thinking about, oh, if I have to pull in this library every single time, where am I pulling it from? If I'm pulling all these images from some registry, it needs to be local. It can't be out in the ether somewhere, right? Like, so I have to do these things to make it local first, and then I can start actually like having fun with the stuff that I'm using in house kind of deal. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's tough. It's hard. I understand why people want to do it and it is um, not going to change, right? Like this will always exist. Right. Uh, I think one of the b- biggest like hopes I had in the nineties was like the internet was going to penetrate absolutely everything. Um, it has. And that's true. It has, but there's still these tiny pockets out there where it's just, does not exist and yep. it never will, right? Like that kind of connectivity is not appreciated. <laughs> no, and I mean, I, uh, I'm definitely, I, you know, I'm 30, so I grew up with the internet mm-hmm. um, and my, my dad was an engineer and he owned a software company. So we, we always had internet yeah. um, when I was a kid. But I still, sometimes I gotta get off the internet. Like yeah. I, I love yeah. having everything in my house connected. Uh, I think the happiest day of my life next to the day I got married was the day we finally got symmetrical gigabit fiber. Oh, geez. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Let yeah, me no, like, but sometimes ooh. I want to be in the woods 40 yeah. miles from another living soul with nothing mm-hmm. electronic on me. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Last October, I think it was. The fam and I, we went out to Yosemite and like I was pulling the newsletter. I like I put the brakes on everything for that week. We had internet, right? Like, it, but it wasn't like super high speed. Uh, we were literally in the middle of nature, like right outside Yosemite. So there was no legitimate reason to be on the internet unless it was to upload pictures, right? Because <laughs> <Like, laughs> um, the family wanted to know what we were doing, right? So it was just like, look at all this cool stuff, right? Like you'll never see this anywhere on the East coast or you know, Michigan or anything like, you know, nah. having, taking pictures of 
you know, my son playing under half dome in Yosemite was like one of the coolest thing I think I've ever done. Uh, but there was very little internet involved in doing that. Right. Like, <laughs> and that whole week was not internet free, but it was certainly uh, reduced access. And that was very relaxing. Uh, I don't yeah. think we realize um, how much these little black pieces of glass, uh, you know, alert us, right. As a screen full of alerts right there. Um, and it's something, especially now with everything going on, um, like we have to be mindful of, uh, you know, for our own yeah. mental health, because getting bombarded by information, um, unless you are in kind of crisis mode and in an ability to triage and parse that information routinely, it's going to have psychological impacts. For sure. I, I, I keep my phone on do not disturb. And if, if my phone were to actually make a noise, I think I would scream and throw it across the room. I don't actually, I don't know what my phone sounds like because <laughs> it just, I used to keep it on all the time, the, mm -hmm. the sounds, and it got really overwhelming. The like constant dings from like yep. Facebook Messenger or Twitter or my email or somebody, God forbid, actually calling me with their voice. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. Uh, most of the calls, what was it? I got rid of my landline in 2005 because only uh, like telemarketers and spam calls yeah. were coming in. Uh, it's like, do I get rid of my iPhone because all I get are bogus notifications? No, I actually get rid of the apps. Like I don't have yeah. Facebook on my phone anymore. Yeah, Twitter is like silenced, uh, you know. Um, even some of the, the news apps that I like had turned on last week, I'm turning off this week because I've noticed that it has like a detrimental impact on me last week. Oh, for uh, sure. Having so much information about everything going on coming to my phone, uh, like there's there's like a threshold that I think needs to be crossed, uh, and for me to get a notification, I feel like national emergency, like true national emergency, is like that threshold where I want you to alert me, and literally nothing has that <laughs> level of urgency. So I the really wish like notifications would just get revamped completely and just be like it not be the default. Like that would be I, I, the default I is off. No, I th I think we have a pretty good control, and especially in latest versions. I'm not I'm not a heavy user of uh, of iOS, so I'm not sure how it works there. But I can testify Android. Uh, every every major version does a lot of work in making notifications less less disturbing, more controllable. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. You have stuff like silent notifications. You obviously can prioritize. You can mm -hmm. prioritize one applications uh, over others, but also within them. So for for Slack, for example, you can say I only want to get notifications for my on-call channel, but nothing else. Um, do not disturb, but also very, very configurable. It's, it's a lot to get it configured right, but mm -hmm. when it's done, you can still have all those applications and notifications and all the live just set it up for your, uh, for your setup. I'm usually, I, I live in do not disturb mode on my phone and on my watch, but I still get the real important stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, I would say it works very nice. It took us for sure a couple of years and there was this gap between, well, this is already horrible, but yet but not <laughs> controllable yet. But yeah. now we are in stages where it's pretty controllable if you put an effort to it. The problem yeah, is and... most of the people don't know how to use technology. It well. goes for your phones, for, for the internet, for everything else. But if you learn talking about continuous yeah. learning, then I think you can have pretty, pretty good control over and I, and I think I might actually like 
go not necessarily do not disturb mode, but like turn it off, right? Like turn off all notifications by default and then turn on the ones I actually want. Like, I think yeah. I will do that as a result or, of this call. Yeah, it's just, it's the same. I do do. Yeah, 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 yeah. so instead of like having a priority list, I would have a, you know, this yeah, is way, the list of stuff. White list versus black list is yep. the same. Right? What I really need is a playbook, an Ansible playbook so that I can do this every time I upgrade my phone every year. Like that would yes. be great because those settings do not carry over and I wish they really would. Well, yeah, um, it depends on. I think depends on the on the vendor and on the. Platform. Well, yeah, I think yeah, iCloud yeah. tries to back them up, but. Yeah, Google does too. Kind of, if you have a Pixel and you're upgrading from a Pixel to a Pixel, Google tries, mm. um, and they do a pretty good job of it. Actually, I have a Pixel Four, and I upgraded from a Pixel Two, and cool. if it sees me like swipe to clear a notification enough times without actually tapping the notification. It'll stop showing me notifications from that app. I like that. Or see, like the the, the the machine learning, that kind of stuff, right? Like, that's what I need. Yeah. Like if that's I haven't opened a notification from an app in a year, clearly I'm never going to open that notification, right? Like, Just, turn yeah, that off. stop showing it to me. <laughs> like, we're, we've, we're getting like a mixed bag of the like 90s science fiction promises that were made about the 2000s. You yes. know, some so of them true. are good, some of them really suck. So but, true. It's so true. But like I, the, I love how we're always going to be connected. More, That's how more and more of the good, of the good, good predict, good predictions actually come through. The 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 artificial intelligence is finally doing some good for us as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's true. Google That's true. replies. I got a chip right. implant in my hand, and that's what '90s science fiction promised me. So. Right. So. I'm waiting for uh, insurance approval to get an actual nerve stimulator that is the size of like a wire. Like it's literally a strand. They put it in with a needle and all the logic actually uh, is in there already. All you do awesome. is connect cool. up a battery pack that uses essentially Qi charging technology. Uh, so it's this little pad that just mm -hmm. the needle sits under your skin to stimulate the nerve. And you put this pad on top of that like needle looking thing. And it just conducts the electricity, low voltage through your skin, and all the control stuff is right there too. So the inside my body is completely inert. Outs, you know, when I connect it to something, yeah. that's the only time you can interact with it. Like that is cool technology. That's pretty whatever good. kind of freaking AI is in there that's going to help me yeah. turn off my pain. I want that, right? Like sign there me up right now. <laughs> and you know what? Look, look with all this coronavirus thing, right? They yeah. The, the genome in a week they got mm -hmm. vaccines tested in under two months there are mm -hmm. almost immediate tests now for both the sickness and the antibodies out for in 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 uh, in yeah. uh, two months that's yeah. like i mean I this I is stuff that would have taken the, years before absolutely i get, and never, I get and all the heritage that we have towards technology and everything but mm -hmm. this is just awesome. This is yeah, like this is where we're seeing the good we've side. We've been waiting for. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. As soon and, as I'm able to start replacing body parts with like robot stuff. Yeah, I yeah, I really need a new sign me Bad. up, dude. <laughs> yeah. Um. The 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 things that I do want, right? Like the iRobot type stuff. Uh. Yeah. You know, like that's getting closer too, and I I have an appreciation for that. But there's still like we still gotta get battery technology figured out, right? Yeah, we do. And that is something where I'm like, how do we, how have we not figured this out yet? Right? Like we can have molten salt, like solar farms, but we can't figure out how to store the energy still. Um, and I get it. Like storing energy is like a very complex problem, right? Like go split an atom. You'll see. Um, but the, 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 the idea that, you know, 
we still have these like fundamental challenges ahead of us as a society it means that we need more human brains working on it and fewer potentially computer brains, right? Like the computer brains are great, but we're going to need a breakthrough, right? So unless computer you're feeding it some new algorithm, yeah, you're going to have to like, you're going to have to start tinkering with stuff and great. You can tinker with it digitally. I think that's awesome, right? Like I, uh, uh, had some friends that work at GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, they used to have a huge research hub in Raleigh when I lived there. And like some of the stuff they were doing, like building medications on a computer first, as opposed to in a lab, like putting compounds together, right? Like, so they can be able to like simulate and tell like what mm-hmm. kind of effects this will have and everything else. Like that to me is cool. Like making that faster, like, you know, like Rook said, you know, where we had the stuff in like two months as opposed to a year is really like impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Like chemistry, uh, Chemistry can be weird like that, being able to model things out physically on a computer to figure out yeah. what effect it's going to actually have. Uh, when I took organic chemistry in college, uh, I was literally using like um, tinker toys for uh-huh. some of my homework to help like model things out in like a physical space yep. so that I could better grasp what the fuck was happening in this chemical reaction. Mm-hmm. Chemistry is hard. Oh yeah, like uh, this is I, why I like did not go to college because of all the prereqs for oh, <laughs> chemistry out. and math and everything else, right? Like I went the military route because I just was I was done with school when I was out of high school, right? Like I was ready to get going, but I didn't necessarily want to have to uh, do all the, the the chemistry fun stuff and like f- having to figure out like I have no idea understand why this just happened. Computer, no, please yeah, don't, no, right? That's, like that's the, that's the problem with chemistry. My son is now in college. He's taking chemistry classes, and he gets great grades because he actually does m- m- math instead of chemistry. He's like, I have zero understanding of what it actually does, mm. but the formulas are just math, so I just yeah, solve them and true. get the right results. But I have no idea what's going on. Right, like I was terrible at math math. with physical objects. It it was just math, and I was terrible at math. So, like chemistry. Yeah. So this is where (laughs) this is what it makes impossible to actually do chemistry. Yeah, I'm here with you. One hundred. It's not for everybody. No, thank you, chemists. Though, like I cannot have a higher appreciation for some of the more fundamental physicists, chemists, like those those kinds of career fields. I think that are you know high knowledge low gratitude kind of positions, right? Like, I well, have a here very we go. I think we, give, we give tons of gratitude to those folks because they, they make our lives better for sure. And uh, yeah, no, I, I, I get it why people hate technology. I cannot relate. I, I love technology. Oh, don't get me wrong, right? Like, look at my office. I love technology, but I need a break sometimes, right? Like, I yeah. am a human. I don't have the chip implanted yet. So, yeah. Even the person with the chip implant needs to break every once in a while. So I hear. So, no, yeah. It's true. It's yeah. true. I'm th- they're releasing another one I'm really excited about. So it was supposed to come out Q1 of this year, but uh, it got pushed back a little. I'm going to order it as soon as it's out. It lets you run Java card applets. I don't know Java. Oh my I'm God. This is flashback to like 1995 Java oh, card. Yeah. Java oh cards, like what? What was that from? Where, where did those come from? Sun was the origin. Sun. It came from Sun. Okay. Yeah, the project, the project Oak Oak that they renamed to Java. That's right. Yeah, was yeah, yeah. About applets on on cards for microwaves and toasters and and fridges. All the smart appliances that we have now. This was mm-hmm. their vision in 1991, and, right. and became the, Java in 1995. The, the the cable uh, 
cards. Like, remember they used to be yeah, smart yeah, cards card. that you yeah, actually yeah, had to like plug things. into your tuners or whatever. Yeah, right. same, like yeah. that's where this. That's where yeah, that thing. Yeah. yeah, and the coins, and and like, the coins, and the rings, like all mm-hmm. this stuff. It's like, gee, those are like first Java one, nineteen ninety six. This is what it was all about. Yeah, oh. and now they've got the Vivo Key or Vivo Key is releasing um, a new chip implant that runs Java Card applets, and I have no idea why on God's earth they went with Java Card applets. But that's a tribute for classics, are, if you ask me. It's it's gotta be. But I like, now I have an excuse to learn Java card. Is that I wonder if that's the easiest way to learn Java, maybe potentially. I don't know. There had to be some reason what for that. I wonder if it will run like Java one dot zero as it oh, was. Oh, like the old JDK card. stuff? Mm, well, that'd be interesting. <laughs> you know what? Let's find out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna get I'm getting one. We can experiment on my hand. I don't mind. <laughs> we can experiment on my hand. Things yeah, I'll never hear on any other podcast. Just don't break me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the I mean, and that's kind of the the whole thing with uh like a getting a nerve stimulator put in place, right? Like it can't make it worse, right? Like Yeah. So this this upgrade is, you know, not going to make it worse. So do it, right? Like yeah, I think that's why a lot of people in technology like have trepidations about upgrades because they have in the past had these horrible experiences with upgrades and systems crashing. And now we're moving into this like continuously upgrading state of infrastructure, ephemeral infrastructure, you know, all those other fun stuff. Um, good software right there. Yeah, like that's, it's just, this is all DevOps on kind of like a human scale is what I like to do, right? Like I like to say it's DevOps for humans, like humans doing <laughs> DevOps kind of thing. Um, don't get me started on my Kubernetes cluster quarantine metaphor. You know, I've got one on <laughs> oh, God, too. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, yeah. So upgrades is, is one thing like, yeah. Cause we've all, we've all experienced an upgrade either like as an engineer or as an end user that just like borked something completely borks it. Borked, yeah. Borked the device took down a network, but like the upside of, DevOps is the the ability to release faster means that if you when you do push a bad mm-hmm. update yeah. because you're gonna you right. can fix it. It's inevitable, much right? More like quickly. the assumption that you are going to do something wrong, right? Like yeah. I think that is like the greatest realization in computing is we we now understand enough about uh, these complex systems to realize that we're going to make mistakes because we're yeah. human and you're, we tell these things what to perfect. do. Right? Nobody's perfect. We all need to be able to address these mistakes and recover from them fast. Yeah. And that is the best part about DevOps, I feel like, right? It becomes where you can truly have, you know, a not mistake-free infrastructure, but mistakes don't cost as much. You lower the cost of change to the point where it doesn't cost anything. Now you can do whatever you want on a daily basis, right? Experiment. Get weird with it. Exactly. Right. Like you could get super weird with it. Right. Like I worked for a bank rate, which they did, um, you know, like financial product recommendations for people. Right. So they did a ton of AB testing and like, I was just like, that is so cool. But they were using tools. AB testing is dope. Yeah. But I mean, but it was like, it's, it was on an extreme. It was like AG testing, right? Like they did like multiple iterations, right? Like tweak this thing here, tweak that thing there. Does this, you know, and it was a whole like data science thing to it. It was very impressive and it was very, very cool to watch, you know, the front end, it was all managed on the front end, which I think was even cooler. 
Um, you know, like none of the back end services had any part of this. It was all done on the front end. So they had good for know, them. That's being, yeah, like, it was pretty cool. Completely fearless about change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, like, they, they were, I mean, they built a lot of cool stuff. Um, but they were very, very good about making sure the right information was in front of the person based off the data that they had from all these other people, you know, coming to a page and clicking X, Y, or Z, right? Like they had tons of information to tell you this is the right thing to, you know, like quantitatively prove that this is the right thing to show people. Yeah, that's, uh, I hope that becomes the norm, uh, making decisions based on like actual data. Yeah. And yeah, like, data driven decisions are great. Yeah, I, I think, yeah. And, but there is, there is, uh, um, how do you call it, a culture, uh, um, cargo cult going on with the mm. data driven decisions. When people hear that making decisions based on data is very cool, and then they just take random, usually wrong data and <laughs> base the decisions on them because they heard that this is how they should make decisions. So, and, and this is what I see now much more than anything else, much more than just, you know, just doing- a bad input or bad data. Yeah. yeah. So, or using and, the wrong data potentially. Yeah. Uh, gathering reliable data is extremely hard. Gathering, oh, absolutely. Gathering any data is super easy. So obviously mm -hmm. we go where there is less, less friction and that's, let's just get any data and take decisions based on that. And obviously the data is wrong because this is, you didn't put enough effort in gathering the right data, but you still feel that you made decisions based on data. And I have to say that for me, basing the decisions on, on, on wrong data is mm -hmm. much more dangerous than basing your decisions on your gut feeling or your understanding of how the things work or supposed to work. So yeah, yeah the, the term of, sorry, go ahead, Kat. It's, it's also like, it's really easy to make um, inaccurate assumptions based on like, just by manipulating data or looking at it in a dishonest way. Like there's mm. a, there's a mm -hmm. website called Spurious Correlations. Uh, I need to go check this out. It sounds fun. The divorce rate in Maine correlates with the per capita consumption of margarine. Uh, the per capita cheese consumption correlates yeah. with the number of people who died by becoming tangled in their bed sheets. So uh, you can like be dishonest about your data, and it's that's possible. like some freakonomics on steroids. Oh, it's it's really it's really fun. They have a ton of them. You should definitely go look. At oh that yeah, now, I've got a. I, I think it's it's now. a book, right? It's yeah. freakonomics or correlations. Spurious correlations. I, I, if it's a book, I need to go get it because I need uh, something it's, like it's that. It's just a it's just a blog. There might be a book for it now, but it was originally just a blog of like. Nice. Uh, yes, he has written a book called Spurious cool. Correlations. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a book. Yeah, and it's an amazing, it's a hilarious book. Uh, so, so yeah, and and uh, that's no, but that's more for fun because obviously you understand that it doesn't make any sense. But bad mm -hmm. data, I think, is the new plague. And I think big bad data brings much more bad decisions than not having data at all. So, it, you know, yeah. but if you're being smart about it and you're continuously gathering new data, you hopefully pick that up quickly. Unless you're somehow gathering data that is also skewed, which you, you continue, is potentially right? possible too. Yeah. Right? So you came up, let's say you came up with some number that shows you that uh, I don't know what the, the stupid thing I can think about that 
um, this uh, podcast is only have been listened in some uh, area of the world that, you know, it, this is just because someone just told you that this is how it is and you mm-hmm. check the numbers and the numbers make sense. And this is where you start to promote it and you spend money on it and then you don't see any results from it and this. I mean, but you will still keep doing that because now you, you think that your formal getting the data is the right one. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, I, like, I have, question I have your masters. other examples that I don't want to, <laughs> I don't feel comfortable talking about, but. No, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, uh, part of being in DevOps is to be like, not rebellious, but like just a little, a little, little weird, a little weird, a little rebellious, right? Like, uh, trust, but verify, right? Like, I feel like that is a very big thing in DevOps, right? Like I, I told you, you should do this thing, but I'm going to verify that thing. Like unit testing, right? Like we do tons yeah. of testing. You know, and you know, if, if you're, if you're going to programmatically say, Hey, computer, do the thing you should programmatically say, Hey, computer, did you do the thing as well? Um, that I feel like helps in this regard, but the data science world and the DevOps world don't intertwine too often. And when you do see it intertwine, you see like some really big gains for data, but you don't see a lot of like the practice culture transition. Right. Like you see, I remember working with some of the data pipeline folks at Bankrate where I was telling you about and like teaching them that uh, containers were the model that they should follow and like just update your, your, your engine in the container itself, update your algorithm in the container itself, and then just run it against the same data set hundreds of times. Um, <laughs> like that kind of blew their mind. But after that, there was so much just trying to teach them how to use containers and how to deploy them and all the different iterations of things they could possibly do with how much compute and all the other bits and pieces, um, you know, and then making that scalable in AWS form, you know, and then if they needed GPUs and all this other stuff. So, right, like the idea of teaching data scientists cultural ways to, you know, question the, the, the source of their data, I think makes a lot of sense because if you are getting your data from an authoritative source and the authoritative source is incomplete or bad or inaccurate for whatever reason, yeah, that's going to cause systemic issues, no matter what, even if you are continuously monitoring things exactly. and continuously updating things. If the, if sounds, the, sounds like a talk you should write for a data science conference, my friend. So I actually have a friend, Sam Boyer. He's all about like, uh, like what Baruch's talking about, like validating accuracy and like he he got like all meta on me one time after the election, the U.S. election. He was just like, yeah, you know, like if we had a way to verify the accuracy of information in an open and honest and, you know, brokered kind of way. Sam Boyer, the Sam Boyer? The Sam Boyer, yeah. He actually lives here in the Detroit metro area. So we need, uh, we need to bring Sam Boyer into this podcast anyway. Uh, just to record an episode of an hour when we shout and curse the sky for dependency management in <laughs> any possible language technology. He would love to have a conversation like that because that's all he thinks about sometimes. Yes, so that's all we think about as well. I love Sam. My, I, I will send Sam a note. One of my favorite blog posts of all time is obviously – uh, how he tried to write a dependency management for Go. Uh, and uh, this mm. is, I love Sam. We need to bring him. I, we're going to pin him because that would be just hilarious. We're going so, to shout for an hour about how horrible people yeah. are and how horrible they make dependency management for us. To, to give you an idea of how small the, the technology world is, um, 
I first, like I knew of Sam, you know, from the internet, like we all do know people yeah. uh, from the internet kind of thing. Um, but he spoke uh, at GopherCon in 2017. I want to talk to him after because a lot of what he said was like striking home for me when the DevOps, you know, kind of realm, uh, never got the chance, uh, decided when I got back, I was going to start a Golang meetup here in Detroit, uh, started it a day before another person at another company in Detroit wanted to start one. So he reached out to me and he was already like in talks with Sam to do a talk at this meetup that we were creating. So that's how I met him. Right. Was through, you know, GopherCon, going there and then realizing, oh, he's local. I didn't even know he was local. And now he's at this meetup talking. Such a, such a small world. And, such a small world. Uh, I try to recall if I spoke at Go Meetup in Detroit or was it only Java and DevOps? I think you did the DevOps one. And Java one. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You did that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, next time. Once we're allowed to go back to normal lives, yeah, being, uh, being tested. I'm, I'm telling you right now to the organizer, I'm completely fine with being tested before walking into your meetup. Absolutely, right? Like, I, I feel like the, the new state of play is going to be like much like how it is uh, in China right now, where people are like having their temperatures checked constantly, and until uh, yep. you know, testing becomes more ubiquitous and faster, then we're going to have you know different issues that are going to have to come up. The biggest thing I yeah, fear no, when the, we all get back to traveling is that first trip on an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, like, the good news are we don't need to rely on fever anymore with, with the, with the test, the new test that we just spoke about, we're going to actually <clears throat> do tests for a, that's right. For, the five minute one you're talking about. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I'm completely awesome. fine in doing it every time I step into any space with people including the airport and then the plane mm -hmm. and then your, uh, your conference room and whatever mm -hmm. makes sense. I mean, so there was an epidemiologist who wrote or was interviewed in for a piece in wired. I read last weekend and he said something along the lines of like immunized people should have like some form of national ID yeah. so that they can be called upon to go into hotspots potentially and do things right. Like think about the, the Fukushima disaster, how mm -hmm. a lot of the elderly Japanese people of the time were like, Hey, we can help. We'll do it since we're, you know, towards the end of our lives and there's, you know, lethal doses of radiation. Yeah. Uh, I think that is going to come about this is that there'll be people that are be like, you know, for the first year or two that are like, yes, I'm immunized or, you know, yes, I've been inoculated or, you know, whatever. Exactly. Um, and like the idea of those people having an identification card or some kind of, you know, opt-in kind of system where they could say, yes, you know, I've been cleared. Here's my federal, you know, checkbox or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. Um, but again, I feel like there should be a technological way to do that, right? Like, yeah, so my, my point is exactly that. I mean, if you can uh, uh, tie this test, even daily, you don't need more than that. So you get mm -hmm. tested mm -hmm. in the morning with the machine that is connected securely to their servers, and mm -hmm. then your phone gets like a green, uh, uh, you know, a green light yeah. in the app that you can show and say, I'm good for today. And it will disappear yeah. tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, you do a new test, and then you can actually go about. So mm -hmm. I don't. I'm. I'm not sure we should get government involved in that. Looking at how the government is oh, well, dealing yeah. with whatever it is now, but technology for sure. Yeah. With this optimistic note, <laughs> I would like to thank our guest Chris. I would like to uh, <laughs> thank my uh, co-host Cat. I would like to invite you all to stay tuned to our future episodes 
of the DevOps Speakeasy podcast in which we will try to get Sam Boyer and other amazing people. We will definitely bring Chris again because it looks like we're just getting started to mm-hmm. talk about stuff and then the time run over. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me.